Hi, I'm Matana DeWitt, joined by Dr. Drew Johnson. Welcome to Discover Your Roots, a podcast that will give you tools for understanding the Bible in its original context and its wisdom for today. Let's get started. Welcome back, everyone. We are here today to talk about stories. Um, excited to dig into this topic. It kind of transitions well from the last episode we just did, where we were talking about the law, specifically how the law and the Bible actually kind of invites us into a sort of narrative, uh, makes us a character in in a story so we can understand what it looks like to um, to make ethical decisions to be a wise and discerning person. So this leads us really well into today's topic, which is Bible stories. Um, I think a lot of us, especially those of us who grew up in church, maybe went to Sunday school every week, we heard a lot of these Bible stories. Um, and they were they were great kind of cornerstones to our faith. They they helped anchor us. They helped um, us understand where our faith comes from. But there's a lot more going on here than what um, we may initially think, or that you know, as as kids we realized. Um, and it's time to go deeper. So one thing that I'll say too is that as um, I have a, a background in journalism, and in that I really love stories. I've always loved stories. Um, And often we think about stories through the lens of media or entertainment, but there's a whole lot more happening in the realm of stories whenever we talk about the Bible. So what are some ways that we interact with stories on a daily basis that kind of maybe expands beyond that framework we have of entertainment or media? Hmm. Well, even uh, journalism, you know, you think about getting the facts, getting the the facts straightened out, but also you have to get people's stories, right? Right. we, uh, when your kids grow up, uh, they are horrible storytellers. Like so, when the kids come home from school or whatever they've been doing for the day, or when I come home, I say, "What did you do today?" And um, before they kind of learn how to tell a story, how to narrativize or storify their life, you know, they just give you a list. Like, oh, I broke a crown, and then I went in my room, and then I did this, and I did that, and you're like, "This is uninteresting, right?" It's like student papers who just give you a list of information. You're like, completely uninteresting. Could you put this in a more compelling order, please? Um, but instead, like what we expect people to do is to give us kind of a little like, what was the major conflict that constructed your day that you were trying to solve? You know, uh, at work today, we had this crisis arise and we were working on it together. And, and then it maybe we haven't even resolved it, but we're going to get it resolved tomorrow. Looking forward to that. So I think – Narrative-like chiasms that we talked about, that kind of inward-outward movement. Uh, Narratives have this up-down from conflict to resolution and continuing action movement that is very natural to the way we think about the world. Some people would say that our our brains are wired narratively, that we actually are wired to think through narrative. Um, I think there's at least – that's partly true. Um, And I think we can think about – the, the problem with Bible stories is everybody's got their take. They're usually hot takes on, on Bibles or their thoughts or I identify with Elizabeth. You're like, that's great. She's not a main character. Uh, she she plays a very important role. But um, So instead of starting in Bible stories, maybe we should start in other stories and think about how stories work in general uh, and then move into Bible stories and just apply the same rules of literature that the biblical authors are using. Um, not that the biblical authors are looking down going, okay, what's rule number two again on this story I'm trying to tell? But there's just these general rules that we all follow um, when we're thinking about uh, how to organize something into a story. So if I can think about a, a great story, like uh, one of the ones we were just talking about, John Steinbeck's East of Eden, I think one of the greatest American novels. A lot of people think that. 
Um, but as you're reading it, uh, you can imagine it's entertaining, it's dark, it's got all kinds of twists and turns where you're just like, oh my, I mean, where your jaw just drops when you turn the page and read the next sentence. It's got all of those elements to it. But certainly, I didn't read it, as I was telling you, until I was 40 years old. And as I was reading it, I very quickly realized that John Steinbeck is not trying to dazzle me with this really complicated story. That happens uh, through the telling of East of Eden. But what he's actually doing is kind of using these characters to reach through the pages to kind of wrestle with me about the nature of humans. What are our obligations towards each other? What do we do when humans have been profoundly hurt and traumatized? And how do you handle them when they act out their traumas in all kinds of really bad ways? Um, what do we do with people who are helplessly romantic, helplessly lonely? Um, he's actually kind of giving us pictures like the book of Genesis to show us what he thinks is better and what he thinks is unhelpful. Um, and what he thinks is hapless and hopeless, right? You think this, you know, you think you're going to fix the world doing X, Y, and Z. Let me show you how that's actually going to turn about. It was helpful that I didn't read it until I was 40. Cause I, as I was telling you, I think if I had read it in my twenties or certainly in high school, um, well, I would have been looking up a lot of words in high school, but uh, I don't think I would have believed that these were real characters. I would have believed this was like make-believe. Like mm-hmm. there, there aren't people who actually think and act like this. Um, but yeah, by my fourth decade, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is really how people <laughs> – this guy gets people. He mm-hmm. understands it. And so I think we can think of narratives as entertaining, but it's often – here's the problem is Steinbeck, you know, he's got this one central character, Adam – uh, no lie, his name is Adam. Uh, it's east of Eden. It's set in Salinas, California in the early uh, 1900s. But his name is Adam. And he goes on a 100-page backstory just like talking about his childhood and his dad and uh, his relationship to his brother and then just brings you right back into the present. Most people will realize the biblical authors do not do that. Right? The stories are very terse. They're condensed. They're just like, and then he went here and he did this and he went here then he went and did this and – and the and the and he did this are often very like wait what uh, you know uh, and you're wanting more explanation and they're just like moving on next stop <laughs> you know it's like being on tour in Israel like next yeah. stop we're going to, like I know your brain was just blown by that last thing you saw but we're moving on get on the bus right <laughs> so I think we have to think about how the biblical authors use the very few words that they do use I know we think the Bible's long but if you look at the span of storytelling that's going on there. Um, they're being very efficient with their language, and they're trying to focus us laser-like on particular aspects of reality so that we can see what they're doing. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. So, you know, in that, that's a, a modern example of, you know, East of Eden as a, as a kind of a parallel to what Scripture is doing. Can you give us some examples? I know you mentioned that like, you know, a trip to Israel where you're going from site to site right. and you're like, wait a minute, we just saw Mount Presbyterian, which is um, traditionally the, the location where Jesus is, um, I think it's Luke 4, right. where he's um, almost pushed off off the edge. So you're, you're there and you're, you're standing there, you're looking over the edge and, and then it's like, okay, it's t- you know, time to go. So what are some ways that the Bible um, kind of lays out narrative for us, even if it is terse and kind of <laughs> takes, us rent, takes us places where we want to maybe hang out longer, but then kind of redirects us because there's a larger point that it's trying right. to make besides maybe that detail. So this goes back to what we talked about in a previous episode of the kind of Robert California, Californicification. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> is that a word? Yeah, this, this, uh, 
Let me give you a series of short stories. Again, Jesus does this with the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the lost son. Uh, let me give you a series of small stories. And what that does, kind of like the poetry, it, it limits down, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I want you to see. Like, okay, yeah, there's all this other stuff going on that's interesting, um, but I'm going to keep coming back to this. Repetition is a key, uh, a key tool of focus in Scripture. So when we see similar storylines coming up again or parallel storylines, when we see the same character going through – you know, there's a reason we're following characters like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, although there are hundreds and thousands of people coming into their orbit, and there's all kinds of money and business and all kinds of crazy political things going on in their lives, but we're basically following them as people and God's promises to them. It's really about focusing our attention on the conversation that the biblical authors want to have. Um, a friend of mine used to tell this uh, joke uh, well, it wasn't a joke. It was a kind of reality for pastors. You know, it was like this this issue of gossiping and prayer, <laughs> and um, how you you know you come in and you say to the prayer group, "Oh, we need to play, pray for you know Joanne." Yeah, why? Oh, well, you didn't hear she got caught stealing. Stealing? What did she steal? Tic Tacs. What flavor? It's like doesn't matter. <laughs> the fact is, she stole Tic Tacs, right? Um, so I think there are all kinds of shiny objects, and I see Christians doing this all the time. It's so I do it too. Like I, you see some shiny object in the story, and we'll talk about that next episode, and we get all hung up on it. And then I've seen people, pastors, build entire sermon series out of that shiny object, and I'm going, "That's not really what the biblical author is trying to focus your attention on." It's interesting. It's not uh, unimportant. If it's in the biblical text, it's important. Everything is there for a reason. Um, but uh, if I don't know if you remember. Do you remember the prayer of Jabez? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a great example of somebody who took a few lines out of a genealogy and created a whole cottage industry, like millions and millions of dollars exchange hand on, the, on those few lines. And so that's not what the biblical authors are doing with the uh, story. They're like, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you how this turned out. And I'm going to tell you a side story that seems like, a, you know, Judah and Tamar and the Joseph story. It seems like a complete side story until you read it all in context and you assume that the biblical authors know uh, know exactly what they're doing. They're writing everything for a reason. Same thing with Steinbeck. You know, he jumps in one sentence back, you know, 50 years. And I'm like, wait, where are we? What are we talking about? I just assume he knows what he's doing and that he's saying everything that he's saying for a reason and no, no word or sentence is lost off the page. Mm. So I think we have to give the biblical authors that much credit that they know what they're doing. They're not just slapping stories together haphazardly and going, well, these that looks good. Um, these seem important. Mm -hmm. And and by crafting these many little stories into a larger story, they're actually tussling with us about what they think is uh, the nature of, like in, in Genesis, we could talk about relationships between humans, sexual relationships, political relationships, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the larger, the larger narrative, the larger story. I'm curious because I I think a lot of us have grown up hearing you know the story about Jonah and then we hear the story about Noah and we hear about David and Goliath and mm -hmm. there are all these different stories but I'm I'm curious and one thing that I I think a lot of people who have been to Israel have, are kind of starting to see the full narrative play out and they're like right. oh wait a minute this is where Noah fits in and this is where Abraham fits in and this is where David fits in. Um, what do you think is missing in many Christians? view of scripture like what what's missing in that larger narrative um if i could just get real judgy for a minute as if i haven't been <laughs> up to this it. point if i can get openly judgy i think uh I, I don't know if they have these restaurants anymore but when i was growing up they had these restaurants called cafeterias or smorgasbords was the was the uh swedish name for them 
And uh, you can go in and just pick whatever you want, right? You get a plate and you just load it up with whatever you want. And I feel like a lot of Christians essentially do that with these stories. These stories that are interlocked together, very tightly interlaced. And they go, okay, feeding of the 5,000, that one's nice. Uh, and then, okay, the, the multiplying fish, great. Uh, the fish with the coin, weird, but let's take it. You know, we can definitely tell that one to kids because that'll sell. That'll preach to kids, right? Um, and instead, the, the, the analogy used by biblical scholars of like the Gospel of Mark, which a lot of people, if you just read the Gospel of Mark the first time, you're like, this seems like a lot of random stories just thrown together. But biblical scholars, I'll just tell you, they see it as an interwoven tapestry. Mm. They, they actually see it as every thread leads somewhere uh, and has multiple points of contact with some kind of theme or idea that the author is trying to develop. Um, and so part of it is just reading the whole thing. The, this We've said it before, the natural habitat of Scripture. It's not to be read one sentence at a time like Steinbeck's East of Eden. You're not supposed to just read one chapter and then, and then read another chapter 20, you know, 20 chapters later the next day and then go back to chapter 3 the next day. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be read and order as much as you can in one sitting. Like the early church, Justin Martyr said of the early church, they, they would meet together, they would sing a hymn, they would pray, and they'd read as much scripture aloud as long as they could stand, which mm-hmm. we don't know how long that was, but it'd be great if they <laughs> had watches. Probably longer than us today, right? I'm going to guess, <laughs> yeah, just attention span wise. Uh, but they would read lots of long passages of scripture, and I have to think part of the impulse uh, for them doing this, we don't know, we just have the report that they did this, was because they thought the biblical authors were putting something together for them mm. versus they didn't think they were walking into a smorgasbord where they get to pick what they like and kind of ignore the rest. Mm. That makes sense. So I know you've mentioned story as being compared to um, like a court, like a, an argument they made in a courtroom mm-hmm. or even the scientific process. Um, how, is, how does story compare to those things? The... Issue, I would put those under controlling the narrative issue. So mm-hmm. we all understand today, like if something, you know, someone tries to uh, call you out or shut you down or what's cancel you. That's like, what's the, what's the term we use? <laughs> Don't at me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. In public, it's really like people are like, you got to control the narrative. You got to, you know, you got to do the right thing in order to control the narrative. And I think that impulse isn't entirely wrong. I think that's actually tugging on our natural impulse to like, hey, there's something you don't understand. Interesting, it's like, hey, I know you think this thing about me, but you don't understand it. So let me tell you, not facts, but let me tell you the bigger story. So this all makes sense. And and you were trying to control the narrative. And again, that might be in a good way. It might be there is a, a wrong narrative about somebody out there. If we knew the bigger picture, we wouldn't think that. So, um, and I, I just want to point out the biblical authors are entirely aware that they are controlling the narrative. They're They're not just, again, compiling stories. Luke begins in his prologue by telling you, hey, I know there are other gospels, but I've created this orderly account from eyewitnesses so that you may have confidence. Uh, John ends his gospel by like literally doing the only time, in I don't know of any piece of literature in antiquity that does what John does, where he's telling the story of Thomas and the disciples, and then he turns to the camera, literally speaking, and goes, and you... Uh, Jesus did many other things. I mean, looks right at the camera and says, Jesus did many other things that could fill volumes, right? But I have written these things so that you, and you're like, me? Like, oh, oh, wait, wait, you're talking to me? I mean, he he turns to the camera and grabs him and says, don't you understand that I I didn't just slap these things together. I wrote these things so that you would have uh, trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So uh, I take that to be a general 
mode that the biblical authors are working in. I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm curating this collection and putting them together and weaving them together very carefully for you so that you can understand and see what I'm trying to show you. Um, so it shouldn't surprise us that politicians do the same thing, um, that uh, it's, there's been research on the use of argument uh, in courtrooms, and it's actually mostly about narratives because closing arguments – tend to be a long narrative about here's what actually happened on the night of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as it turns out in these, these legal studies, you know, where they actually bring in fake jurors and they, and they see how they react to various uh, scenarios in the courtroom, uh, it's people with the most coherent narrative that puts the most facts together from the case in a logical, coherent sequence of events. That's who wins the case, right? Mm-hmm. So, we view narratives very much as forms of argument today. Even scientists, I was looking for examples for this book I was working on, and I, I couldn't believe that almost every single explanation given by a scientist about how something – the invisible features of the world, like I know you can't see this thing, but COVID, for instance. Mm-hmm. I, I, know you, I know none of us have seen it at all, ever, um, but let me explain to you how it works. And then the explanation they give is not – Here's fact A. Here's fact B. Now, if fact A is entailed by fact B, then we can go to fact C and see how it's entailed and put these in logical order. No. They say, here's this conflict you got to wrestle with. And then we thought it was this, and they give you rising tension. We thought it was this. We tried this. didn't work, so we went on to this. We went on to this. And then finally, we resolved it by uh, figuring out this one thing. Hmm. Um, science... I think everybody we know who is really trying to convince somebody of something is using ultimately a form of narrative to do the arguing for them, mm. including uh, ancient Greek philosophy. I mean, I I often find that with my philosopher friends, they're like a little resistant to narrative. And I'm like, wait, when I learned philosophy, everybody said I had to read Plato, but begin with Socrates and the Socratic Dialogues. And if you haven't read the Socratic Dialogues, you don't have to. Um <laughs> I'll tell you really quickly what's in them, and they're, they're more interesting than what I'm going to describe. It's essentially a description by Plato of this man, Socrates, who's, who was his teacher and mentor, who wanders around mostly Athens. And Socrates doesn't actually teach anything. All he does is ask people questions. Um, and he often disturbs them. Uh, he's, you know, he's like the troubler of Athens is what he's called, right? Um, because he's like, hey, you're really smart. You're a noble in the city. What do you say justice is? What is justice anyways, right? Uh, and then they give some answer that they learned in school. And he's like, really? So let me give you three examples that don't seem to add up to what you just said. And then he just plows through them with quite, he's like a five-year-old. Why, 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 why? Until they finally admit, well, I thought I knew what it was until you came and talked to me. And now I have no idea. What is it? What is it, Socrates? And he's like, well, how, how can I know? I'm just an old man and, and walks away, right? <laughs> he's really cruel. Um, and that's why he's called the Troubler, right? Um, but what I realized when I was reading these stories, I was like, okay, these are interesting stories, especially if you're interested in Greece and what people thought in Greece. But who cares about what people thought in Greece, you know, uh, a couple hundred years before Jesus? Um, and then you ultimately realize, wait, Plato isn't merely telling us stories about Socrates. He's actually using the character, the real man Socrates, but how he's made him a character in his stories and he's reaching through the pages to grab us with the character of Socrates. And Socrates is actually arguing with me about the nature of justice, what I think the nature of justice is. And I'm identifying with various characters throughout the way. This is a very sophisticated and very powerful way of, of reasoning with people. 
So when the biblical authors string together narratives, uh, I don't take that to be fluffy or uh, often it's not entertaining. Uh, you know, we can talk about how some parts of scripture are tough to slog through because they're not meant to razzle dazzle us. They're actually reasoning with us, which is why it's difficult. And you have to get down on the ground with them and take seriously what they're saying and go like, okay, not super interested in an Athenian old man wandering around just prodding people with questions, but let's go there, right? And when you do, you'll see that um, that the characters of Scripture are not saying that they're not real, but the, the way they're being used as characters in stories are reaching through the pages to reason with us about the nature of justice, for instance, about mm. the nature of political life, about the nature of truth and knowledge and how we can know God in reality and everything else we want to think about. Wow. So we've talked about how Stories can do a whole lot more than just entertain us, um, especially the stories of the Bible. They're doing a whole lot more. So can you kind of as we start to wrap this episode up, can you tell us what are the what are the things that the stories in the Bible are wanting to do for us? Like, like what are what are they there for? What's what's the big the big point? Yeah, I, I mean, so there's a lot of debate about this amongst, like everything. Everything I just said is highly controversial with every, you know, every, different scholars would pick apart different parts. But so I'm, I'm trying to make big statements here. But I think, uh, and, and one of the debatable things is, is scripture really a big story or is it more like a big poem, poet with story embedded in it and other things? And I think there's good room for thinking about both of those things. But there is a large story going on in Scripture, whether you think all of Scripture is more like a poem or a narrative, um, which really means that the nature of everything we need to do and be in reality begins with there is a problem, right? Stories begin with a conflict that has to come to resolution, and there is a resolution to that problem in which we are called to participate in that resolution of the problem and to understand the nature of the problem and its multifaceted the multifaceted and nefarious ways in which the problem really corrupts the nature of the universe, and also the kind of the, the glorious, beautiful ways in which the, the solution comes in as well, the, the resolution. Um, and we are, as, as we like to say, we're living in the in-between. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're living in the in-between, the, the already and not yet, and mm-hmm. so we're not part of that solution. But I think if, if, if Scripture is telling us a master narrative in some way, um, that it really is identifying that there's a conflict that has to come to resolution. And we're, we're, we're part of that. God is overseeing it. He's the storyteller and, and the one uh, overseeing the, the resolution that will ultimately come. Mm, that's awesome. Before we wrap up, I do want to kind of call attention to that one point too that you just made with God as as being the storyteller. I think sometimes in, um, and I'll even admit that I've had to like recognize this tendency in myself too. But in in seeing my own uh, my own faith and my own walk with the Lord in context of Scripture, it can be tempting at times to think about ourselves as the main character and mm. in, in thinking, well. You main know, character moments. My, yeah, exactly, exactly. So what what can you say about that? Um, in terms of the big story, obviously the story that we're most familiar with probably is our own story, the right. story that we're living out. So how do we how do we reconcile the fact that we are a very, like each individually, our very minor character in the larger story that God is telling? How yeah. can we reconcile that? I, I actually learned this most clearly in boot camp uh, for the Air Force where the the commander, uh, squadron commander came down one day, I don't know, a week or two into it. And he's like, 
gentlemen, uh, this is when it was all men, uh, and one squadron together. And he's like, gentlemen, you need to learn that your greatest glory in the military is not serving, uh, you know, with valor. It's actually realizing that you're a cog in a very big machine and everything every cog does is important to the total mission. Um, and I think that was really helpful for 17-year-old Drew to hear and be like, wow, I, I'd never processed that. Boot camp is an especially mm. precious place to process thoughts because <laughs> you do have some time to reflect and your whole life is being de- deconstructed in front of you. <laughs> um, I think, though, the interesting – it's funny you say we're the main character of our story. The interesting thing about stories, stories and narratives are invisible as well. Mm. Like they're not a feature of the world and, in fact – um, if I were to say, what's the big story of Matana, you will tell me a story. But if I come back five years from now and say, now, what was the story of Matana back in 2021? Mm. You will probably re-narrate it and, and you'll say, well, I thought this was the conflict. I mm. thought this was the tensions that were driving towards some resolution. I now see that wasn't even it or there was this other thing going on. So um, that's the great thing about, you know, if you think about a syllogism, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. It gives you all the premises plain and clear for you to see, and you just have to work it out. One plus one is two. Uh, narrative, the premises are all there. They're all logically connected to the conclusion. You just don't know what they are as they're unfolding. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of when you wow. get to the resolution, you look back and you go, oh, those were the clues that were leading me to this uh, this discovery that we've come to. So um, even saying that I'm the main character of my own story should be a humbling exercise that says, which means I don't actually know what are the clues that are going to release. I don't even know necessarily what the resolution is, right. which yeah. is how a lot of us feel in our 20s, I think. <laughs> and, and then again in our 30s and then yeah. again in our 40s. And I'm sure the 50s, it's going to be the same. Um, also, I think when it comes to stories, I have a massive warning here that we all need to abide by, and it's true of myself as well. And I'll give one example to show you how how bad it can go. Uh, The rabbis in the Talmud asked this question, how did the man in the Garden of Eden know that the woman was the proper mate, right? Um, Because it begins with other dirt-created animals that had the breath of God in them and being presented to him, and so he could somehow tell that those other dirt-created creatures were not like him, the dirt-lean, the dirt-created creature. Um, and then eventually the woman is presented to him. And so they just ask this normal question. How did he know? Like, what were the signals to him? Because the story doesn't say. The story is very short, right, and short on details. So one rabbi proposes, well, this is simple. He had sex with all the animals, and then he had sex with the woman, and that's how he knew. Um, and I tell that story uh, to my students to shock and horrify them. <laughs> And, and to say, actually, there are some sexual elements in the story. It's not like from the Hebrew, it's not entirely crazy. I don't think the dude was a pervert. I think he was actually trying to think through the issue. Um, but I, I do that to warn them. It's very easy when you come into a conundrum where you, you want to know something that's a gap in the story. Uh, so what do we do? We fill it with another story that's not in the story, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we want to know what happens to people when they die. Well, the scripture basically says nothing about people when they die, like what happens to them at that moment. So we we want to fill it with all kinds of stories. Well, you go immediately to the presence of God in the heavens or you go into hell or something like that. And scripture is just silent in the Old and New Testament on this issue. And so I, I think we need to check ourselves as storytellers who see ourselves as the center of our own story – I think we give ourselves a little bit too much power. If the biblical author wanted to tell us exactly how the man knew that the woman was his mate, they would have. They have the language. They have the power to say those. So, uh, say those things to us explicitly as they want to say them to us. 
So the fact that they chose not to is an authorial decision that we have to respect and say, like, I wish they had, you know, I wish a lot of things. I wish they had given us some time on the clock. Like, what happened? The creation of man, naming of the animals, the woman. Like, was that one day, five days, 10 years, 10,000 years? Like, there's no narrative tempo that indicates how much time went by. I mean, there, we have so many questions about those first two chapters of the 50 chapters of Genesis. But we, we turning up the volume knob on the biblical authors is allowing them to tell us a story the way they want to tell us and not filling in the gaps because they make us uncomfortable mm. with our own stories. Mm. And we do it all the time. I catch myself doing it as well. So we're, we're, we're all guilty. <laughs> it's a good, good starting place. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode and looking forward to the next one. We're going to continue this conversation about stories um, and then especially why the structure of stories in the Bible matter. So come back. It'll be great. We will see you then. Thanks for listening to Discover Your Roots. This podcast is brought to you by the Passages team and is made possible by our generous donors. If you'd like to make a contribution to the work we do, please visit PassagesIsrael.org and click the Donate button. To find more resources about the Bible in its original context, the roots of the Christian faith in Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Jewish-Christian relations, and more, subscribe to our newsletter at PassagesIsrael.org forward slash foundations. Again, that's PassagesIsrael.org forward slash foundations. You can also follow us on social media to learn more about Israel and the Bible at Passages Israel. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, I'm Matana DeWitt. Thanks for listening.